swing and a fly ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Up and away. A home run for Jeff Conine. Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning. In right field. There's a ball hit by Jeff Conine. Past the diving Eric Carroll into right field. Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame. Outside the box with Jeff Conine. I'm Aram Layton. It's finally happening. I'm sure you can guess who I'm joined by. Jeff Conine, the man in the title. Jeff, we finally are able to do this. This is episode one. We've talked about it for a while. This is going to be a blast. I, I can't wait to get going. As am I. Um, I can remember the night we were at your uh, mom's house in the backyard uh, for her, her birthday party. And I said, let's do it, man. Let's, let's quit talking about it and let's do it. So here we are. I'm, I'm glad it's here finally. Yeah. You know, I was, it was one of those things where I was like, okay, I'll float this to Jeff, see what he says. And I was not expecting let's do it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> let's do it. then. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm amped. And uh, this is going to be on YouTube as well. We'll have the video out. We'll have snippets of the video cut up as well, but some people might be listening. So every single time something that I want people to know, because they might not be able to see the video, you're going to be wearing one of your million jerseys that you have autographed. <laughs> from the people that you've come across in baseball. I'm going to say right out of the gate, every episode, what the Jersey is you're wearing today. It was the first episode. So I knew who you were wearing. It's an old Yankees Jersey. You look like you just time traveled. You look like a ball player from like the 1940s with the Yanks, but you're wearing Joe DiMaggio assigned Jersey there. So that's going to be a cool bit that we have going where every day you're going to wear a different Jersey on the episode and give the story behind how you got that autographed. I can't express how insane your closet is, but we're also going to do a bunch of cool things. Talk about stories from your career. I mean, 17 years, two world series, uh, all-star game MVP. And then you even worked in the, in the front offices with the Marlins and doing a lot of things there. You have so much to talk about. And uh, I think baseball finds a way to always bring up new topics for us for better or for worse. And we're going to get to some of those today. Uh, but I think there's going to be endless amount of things that we can talk about. And uh, you're just, just seem to be a wealth of knowledge. Well, at the, at the end of my 20 year career, and one of the great things I love about baseball is that uh, up until that last day or that last week I played, I saw something I'd never seen before. Like when I was with the Reds, and I, I still remember this, uh, there was a pickoff, a right-handed pickoff um, from the mound to first base. And the guy threw it in the stands. He literally threw that. the ball into the stands. I said, I mean, neither had I. I'd played 2,000 games in the big leagues, and I'd never seen that before. So that's what's great about this game. Like you said, uh, I wasn't really a collector or a much of a fan when I was growing up. But as the years went on and I realized how amazing an opportunity I was getting to play baseball for a living and to, and to play in the major leagues, I collected things from guys that I respected or that I admired from across the field. So uh, you can see a lot of stuff behind me. I've got baseballs, I've got bats, um, and I finally got into jerseys. So uh, we basically went down the, the list of every uh, roster um, that we played against. And I would tell our clubhouse guy, yeah, I want that guy. Yeah, I want get that guy. And he'd come to me with uh, other like uh, advisors that were in the front office that, uh, you know, I got to meet Willie Mays and have him sign a jersey for me. I met Hank Aaron. Uh, he signed a jersey for me. And well, I should not give all these away because you're going to have to guess who they are. So, but I got a lot of really cool things. I, I think now because I've retired for 12, 
13 years now, um, up to about 40 hall of famers on jerseys. So, um, a lot of them I played against, you know, all the guys that I played against, I got jerseys when I played, so it'll be a fun game. Yeah. I'm going to see, I wonder how many, I, we're going to keep track of my record here. I want to see how I do, but I think I'll do decent. I, I'm worried. I'm going to get stumped on a couple, on a couple throwback jerseys, but we'll see. And you even have right behind you to, to your left behind your head is that's an Xbox signed by Bill Gates. So you've got it all there. No ties to baseball, but still one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So there's a lot of really cool stuff. That memorabilia room is, we might have to do like a tour one day on here. Uh, where yeah, we can do that for sure. For, for the YouTube, because it's unbelievable. So what's the story behind the DiMaggio jersey? And how did you get that signed? And did you meet Joe? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I've, I've done a golf tournament now uh, coming up on our 28th year for the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital. So Obviously, it was met, uh, named after Joe DiMaggio. And the first two years of the Marlins, we were kind of uh, just getting our feet wet. And the community relations wanted to know what we were interested in as far as what we want to get involved with in the community. And I said, something that involved children. So uh, I got invited to a luncheon at the Memorial Hospital. And I got to have lunch with Joe DiMaggio. And the Dodgers were in town, so they invited Tommy Lasorda was there. And uh, Arrestus Estrada, one of my teammates, uh, came along as well. So here I am sitting in this lunch with Joe DiMaggio. And, uh, you know, it didn't, like I said, I wasn't really a fan growing up of the game. I knew, of course, who Joe DiMaggio was uh, just because he's iconic. But at that moment, it kind of hit me that I am sitting across from one of an, an American icon. I mean, this is Joe DiMaggio, Jolton Joe DiMaggio. He's married to Marilyn Monroe. I mean, um, and it hit me. So I decided that that's what a great fit for one baseball and charity work and a uh, hospital for kids. Uh, that was a no brainer for me. And uh, for the first three years of my golf tournament, Joe DiMaggio actually played in my golf tournament. I saw him a number of times throughout the year at different functions we did for the hospital. Uh, I got to tour um, and visit children that were being treated in the hospital, Joe DiMaggio. And um, so I've got a bunch of other autograph stuff from Joe up here. And I thought, what a way to kick it off. Uh, the first jersey would be uh, Mr. DiMaggio. And that's what I called him, Mr. DiMaggio to the very end. That's awesome. Well, that's the funny thing, too, is, is that I get in trouble. Uh, you were making fun of me for calling <laughs> yeah. uh, And then the backstory is I've known you since I was a kid. And uh, I still want to call you Mr. Conine, but that's a weird dynamic on a podcast. So it's still <laughs> Niner and Jeff. So I can understand that even on the DiMaggio scale. And uh, he is, of course, like you said, an icon. I mean, 56 games in a row with a hit. That's one of those, would you say, it's just impossible. That'll, ne Especially in today's game. There's no way that record's ever being broken, right? Um, that's one of the tough ones I think will be, that'll stand for, I mean, never say never. You know, if somebody gets incredibly hot and, and, and rides it out. It's, it's possible, but uh, I really don't think that one's going to be touched along with Cal Ripken's game, game played streak. I don't think that's ever going to be touched. Oh, no way. Um, no, there no are a few other not. ones that Cy Young's records will never be touched. You know, there's just things in this game that will never be touched. And those are three of them that come to the top of my head. Well, and we're going to talk about health and, and longevity because injuries are, are a big issue this year with just the disruption in the schedule. And speaking of Cal Ripken, I think this year's a big example. We've seen a lot of teams resting their players a lot more. And, and I'm interested to get your insight on that because not only uh, were you a baseball player for a very, very long time and had to focus on your health and played into your forties, but you also have done marathons. You've done Ironman. You've done a lot of different things. So I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to get to first though, is 
Juan, though, what was the longest hitting streak of your career? If we're talking about 56 and whether a record is broken, do you have any idea what it was? I should have these in my back pocket so that I could tell you, because last time I quizzed you on one of your stats, you undershot. I was probably it. totally wrong. <laughs> you undershot it. Uh, I'll tell you what it was after you, you guessed your hitting streak. I, off the top of my head, I'm going to say 15 or 16 was probably the longest I'd ever had. Good. It's pretty damn good. Louis Castillo, though, that was you. You were with the team then, right? No, I wasn't. I had, uh, I had just been let go and I was with, uh, I think I was with Kansas city when he did that, that hitting streak. It was 30, and his was what? 35, 35, 35. I think so. Yeah. Crazy. So the one that's still only about halfway there. He's still yeah, 21 that's short. What puts it in perspective. That's like an iconic thing. You walk into Marlins park, you go up the escalator to the left is Louis Castillo, 35 game hitting streak. That's adjacent to you holding the world series trophy. Other, like other things, other major moments in Marlins history. And that's, like you said, just a little bit more than halfway to the record puts it in perspective. <laughs> but the other thing that you undershot was your numbers are in Coors Field or wherever, whatever it was called before, too, because it was split. When you get the splits from the home road and also in Colorado, it was mile high. And then it was Coors Field. Between those two, I think I asked you, you said you were in the high 300s. You were at like 430. <laughs> between those two with, with a lot of bombs in 50 something games. It, it was pretty absurd. And we have the home run derby this year at Coors field. Oh, that's going to be fun. Unbelievable. Shohei Otani has already said he's in it. He just hit a ball 117 miles an hour yesterday. And we also have the defending champ, Pete Alonzo in it. Trey Mancini, who I know you worked with a little bit in Baltimore. He's a guy that's going to be joining in it. And that's just an awesome story. There is quite an obvious effect on the fact that the ball just carries a ton more. And generally they humidify the balls a little bit. I can assume that they're not going to do that for the Derby. Exactly. I was going to say they take those out of the humidifier. Oh, it's a joke. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're not, they're not doing that. So what do you think is going to happen? Like how is this going to be just something we've like never seen before in terms of how far these baseballs are going to go at that altitude as somebody that literally hit almost 500 at, at altitude. If, if they take the balls the way they used to be, like when that stadium first came about, you know, I'd literally, I'd be playing left field. And not only is it carries very well there, the, the park is huge, you know, so you've got, you know, 420 to, to center field and, and down the lines is 340, I think. So the park is giant, gigantic. So as an outfielder, you're really worried about the ball carrying over your head. So you play very deep. Well, the real estate that's in front of you, uh, as far as balls that get over the shortstop's head, as an outfit, I'd have to run like a hundred yards just to get to a ball in front of me. So that's why I think not only are the home runs absurd, but the hits as well, because there's so much grass or so big of the alleys are so big. Uh, that's why the numbers are so scared there. I think they should have put just a regular size field there with high fences. Hmm. And if you want to get it up in the air, home run derby, but at least it would take away all the other hits that you're getting because there's so much grass out in the outfield. But if they have, uh, the balls like they used to have at the beginning, this is just going to be a, a laser show. I mean, I've literally gotten jammed on a ball in Coors Field, stung my hands, like literally stung my hands. I threw the bat down because I thought I got jammed and I'm running to first base and I look up and I see the left fielder going back, going back and he runs out of room and it goes out. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And of course, you know, it's the greatest thing ever for a hitter. And it's kind of a joke as, as a pitcher. He got in, he did his job. He got in on me and, and, and buzzed my hands and I still hit a bomb off him. Yeah. I don't think people realize the, the component that you just mentioned too, because I think that's really important where of course, more home runs, the ball carries no doubt, 
But the fact that they have to play deeper, when you look at home road splits, they're always crazy dramatic. And it's always a topic that's discussed when you're looking at players that potentially could be departing from the Rockies because you don't want to overpay, whether it's a trade or it's a contract for somebody that may not perform at the same level. When you're getting the Nolan Arenados of the world, you, you know you're getting still a really good player. But it's worth noting, even the guys that aren't hitting 40 home runs, and that's something I didn't know until you mentioned it to me, is that the guys that spray the ball over the field are benefiting too because everybody's playing so deep. And, and that's a really interesting point as someone that played in the outfield there, playing in the outfield there. How was that for you? Were the reads more difficult? They always say first step back, right? It's easier to come in. And that's why I'm assuming you play deep out there. But were there times where you didn't think you were going to get to a ball, but it hung up there longer? Were there times where you just kept running and you're like, holy crap, this thing's never coming down? Were the reads more difficult out there? Because you don't really see any crazy mistakes by the outfielders and cores, at least from what I've seen. I mean, once you get, re- once you get used to it, you've got a, a few bag- batting practice sessions out there. You, you realize that at sea level, you're used to the trajectory of a ball. But this one just doesn't come down like it's supposed to. It just keeps on carrying a little bit. So, uh, yeah, so you've got fo- I got fooled uh, early on there, especially in batting practice. I loved used to shag. So I'd get out there and shag. And I'd be going for a ball in the gap. And what I used to think a ball would, the trajectory would come down in my glove. It would keep on carrying and I would undershoot the route. So Coors, you always overshoot the route. You go back first and it's going to come to you because if it's got any air underneath it, it's going to carry deep to the outfield. Well, that's the best case scenario, I think, whether it's the all-star game, which seems to have offensive challenges with all the best pitchers going one inning at a time and just carving guys up. So hopefully there'll be more offense in that regard. Then you also have the Derby, which we haven't gotten the rest of the guys, but I'm assuming Otani is going to break 500 feet on several occasions. It's going to be a lot. Absolutely. And as we get closer, we're going to go over some of maybe your picks for who you think can win at altitude and the benefit, because that was something we're talking about too. I was, I was debating this with uh, Peter Apple, who's obviously the co-founder with me. And and we were talking, is it better for the guy that has the mega power that could maybe even miss hit balls that get out in a derby or maybe the Trey Mancini who has above average power, but just goes gap to gap and can, can just go one after another, after another. It's kind of like we saw Robbie Cano do the one year he won it. Is that a case by case thing? Or do you think an underdog could kind of leg it out because they're able to spray some balls just over the wall that maybe wouldn't have got out in, in a normal stadium? Yeah, I think uh, cause you bring the opposite field home run in, into Coors field. So guys that you see, sometimes they get, beat a little bit on their batting practice ball and they hit those long fly balls to center or right center. And they don't have that kind of pop. So it just lands on the, on the warning track. He's going to carry out. So I think the uh, altitude kind of evens the, even the fields because the bomber is going to hit bombs anyway, you know, exactly. Um, but I think the guys with that, that line drive ish type home run power will benefit by Coors field. And it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. So now speaking of just current baseball as well, and this is something that, has dominated the headlines, no doubt about it. And we have to talk about it. We're not going to talk about it every single episode because there's more fun things to discuss, but got to get your take on, on what's going on right now in baseball with the sticky stuff. Because again, you, you were in baseball for 20 plus years. You've seen plenty. And I know you have some, some great anecdotal stories of just some things that you saw with pitchers, but it used to be more low key then. And it seems like to me, uh, Pitchers got an inch and they've just taken a mile at this point, especially in a world where now we have learned the importance of spin rates. We're chasing spin rates, whereas before it was just a byproduct of something. Now we're chasing certain marks. We're trying to do certain things to our pitches to shape them. 
And these substances are helping us do it. So that's why I think pitchers kind of pushed the limits here of, of what's reasonable. And that's where we are, where we are. Offensive numbers have come back. Batting average is up about seven points. Strikeouts are down and they're cracking down on these sticky substances. I'm okay with it because they were floating some extreme ideas to get offense back in the game. And some of them were insane. I couldn't stand them like moving the mound back, presumably that, that would be yeah. absurd. Right. So if all you have to do is enforce a rule to maybe get offense back into the fold a little bit, I'm okay with that. But the way it's being enforced seems like it could use some tweaking. I sent you the clip because I wanted your thoughts on that between Max Scherzer and Joe Girardi, a little bit of gamesmanship from both sides. It's baseball. There's, there's always going to be things like that that happen, but Basically, for, for those who may not have seen it, Girardi said, hey, why don't you check Scherzer? Scherzer's like, check me all you want. I'm good. They checked him again, and they checked him again. And he took his pants off in the middle of the field and just said, <laughs> strip me down. I don't care. What do you think about – one, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. But, but before we even get to that, just the situation in general, how is it going to be policed? Do you think that they're going to keep tweaking this? Is this something that should be cracked down on the way it is being cracked down on? And then I want to get to some of the stories of what you saw in your playing days. You know what? Uh, cheating in baseball has been around for 150 years. I mean, this game has uh, been, uh, you always look for an advantage. Pitchers have always looked for an advantage. So uh, for the longest time, it was pine tar and rosin and rosin was legal. Obviously you see that rosin bag in the back of the mound and guys would get their sweat and then add the rosin to it. And it becomes tacky. Uh, a lot of guys would put on the inside of their glove, they would put pine tar like on the inside where your hand goes in, they, they coat that with pine tar and every once in a while, they just go to it, you know, real quick to get that tacky feel on their fingertips. Because as you know, a brand new baseball, it could be a little slick. So yeah. And it, it was like a secret, right? We knew it was going on, but it wasn't so overt that like, Oh my God, we know it was going on type thing. Nowadays, I think it's become so such a, a common topic and you know that everybody's doing it. These guys are like, saying um, they're, they're complaining about getting caught about something they're doing that's illegal. You know, yeah. it's like, you're like coming down on me. Like, why are you doing that? Because it's illegal. And they're like, uh, I read a quote about one guy said he blamed his, his um, arm injury because he didn't have sticky stuff. Tyler so Boston. I'm like, I'm like, wow. Uh, it's come to a point where um, these guys are relying on something like you said to produce these spin rates and uh, to make their pitches break a little, little further. It's hard, it's hard enough to hit a baseball with no sticky stuff. <laughs> you know, they don't need to dominate us that much. So as a hitter, I'm always going to say, no, uh, use what you can use, which is rosin. And uh, I think that gives you enough tack to at least get a grip on the ball. And then, you know, when you look at what happened with the Girardi situation, there's no, it, it For me, there's nothing that should interrupt an inning by checking for something like that. Max Scherzer, I think he threw six innings, five hits, one run. He's one of the most dominant pitchers of our generation. I mean, this guy is a super stud. Uh, he, it, he doesn't really need that stuff to be dominant. So I know you're trying to disrupt his, uh, his flow in the game, you know, trying to get an upper hand. But, you know, what they've done in the last five, eight years to speed up the game, now they're adding another component to slow it back down. I just don't get it. I think that they're going to have to tweak this for sure. Um, maybe go to video to see if, you know, they can find if there's credible evidence that he is actually doing something. You know, if you get him on video going to some place that he's not supposed to be going, then maybe check for it. But just for randomly throwing it out there, I don't agree with it. 
I think that's a really good point that I, I haven't really thought about is we have a million cameras now. And we're going to talk about MLB replay one of these days. We can't do it in this podcast because if you get <laughs> there's not enough time, <laughs> we'll run out of time and I lose my mind on MLB replay. So we'll save that one. But there's so many cameras. You can see if a guy is doing something conspicuous, right? You can see something that is a little bit off and they're not checking every inning. So you have plenty of time. If a guy keeps going to his belt, then you can call in and say, Hey, check this guy. And it's not like they don't have enough people watching the games from every which way. How much more is it for MLB to just say, Hey, we're going to have one person or two people watching every game from a specific angle, just watching the pitchers, making sure they're good. I think that's might be the best solution because one, you don't have to interrupt the game unless there is something flagrant. And two, it's not as much of this public thing. They were talking about maybe doing it in the dugout, but that's a little bit weird. You don't need these umpires <laughs> representative here. Just have a video. If you see a guy go into his belt a ton, then go look at him. Maybe he's just, it's a quirk and he's just going to his belt. Then you'll find out. But I think that's a great point. And it, it, it's one of those things for me with baseball that you wonder, it almost seems like they do. And then they think sometimes with these decisions where it's like, Oh, this didn't go well. Now we'll try and fix it. Instead of thinking about all the possible solutions and outcomes or uh, results of what you're going to do. And then planning for those ahead. It just seems to be like baseball is a bit more reactionary sometimes. And this is exactly an example. We're seeing uh, a byproduct of something that was kind of enacted right on the fly and I always say if baseball kind of flies by the seat of its pants, and it seems like that's what's going on right now a little bit uh, with Tower Glass now, I, I understand his frustration. While I don't really understand how you're, you can be injured from not being able to use a substance that was you know, something you used egregiously to cheat. I understand, though, like we had an unspoken rule and you said we could use this and now you just eliminate it right away and shock my body. I guess that's a point you can bring up, but again, it's just baseball reacting kind of knee jerk. And uh, that's the unfortunate thing because it just seems like another mess instead of trying to curate it in house. But we talk about another mess right now in baseball. This one is not as much baseball's fault as just the crazy 18 months that we've had in this world. And there's been a lot more uh, serious things going on than, than tweaked hamstrings and stuff in this world, of course. But for Major League Baseball, there's been a lot of injuries this year. And mm -hmm. it's been a shame, especially because it's a lot of young players. I look at the White Sox immediately. You look at somebody like Luis Robert, fa fantastic athlete. He tweaks his hamstring. He's out for a long time. You have, or I think it was his hip. Aloy Jimenez is out for a long time. Nick Madrigal out for the season, torn hamstring. And that's just one team. You look across the landscape. I've never seen so many players on the IL for so many different teams. Can you talk a little bit about how the last 18 months, having the 60 game season, having that uncertainty, is that what's leading into a lot of these injuries? I know that injuries happen all the time anyways, but it just seems like it's rampant on another level this year. Yeah, I think it's definitely because these last 18 months, you know, baseball players are creatures of habit. They've got certain routines. I know I did. When I finished my major league season, I would take about a month off and then I'd get right back into it. So that's when you start your, your strengthening uh, type, your, your, your heavy lifting type exercises. And then when January comes around, you get into more functional exercises, more functional fitness. So without the use of trainers, really, for a long time, they weren't able to go to their public facilities or their training facilities because they were shut down. Um, and especially nowadays, because back in, in my day, I mean, when I first started, weight training was not a thing at all. The Kansas City Royals, when I got drafted, 
frowned upon weightlifting. They had one multi-station universal piece of equipment off the training room. That was our weight room. And they didn't even, we didn't have a strength coach. We didn't have a strength trainer. So when you look at the evolution of the athlete and how big and strong they are now compared to where just 25 years ago, when, when I played 30 years ago, when I played, they have relied so much on these ultra, uh, modern training techniques that I think they've gotten so big so fast. If you don't keep that up, you're going to lose strength somewhere and there's going to be an imbalance somewhere. And that's why you're seeing these muscles pop like, uh, like crazy. They just weren't able to keep up with the, these, these crazy regimens that they've been uh, instituting over the last few years, because I will say, you know, when you look at the training centers they have now with uh, Cressy up in uh, Jupiter area, who've got a major influx of players they used to have, I think it was called RPI out in uh, Arizona where hundreds of players went there, you know, it's cutting edge technology and uh, it's all great when you can do it consistently, but when that gets pulled off, you know, what happens to your body? It's not ready for that hundred percent max effort on a baseball field. It's a great point because it's almost as if you get your body into such good shape that when you don't maintain it, it shocks it. Right. And it, it's, it's a good thing to get into that shape but it also can come back to bite you if you're not able to sustain it. And I don't think people think about that stuff because, you know, I sit here on my couch and I'm just thinking, well, okay, you get ready for the season and you didn't play as many games last year. You should be more rested. And that's just not the case. And I wanted to ask you, because this is somebody that I've, and it goes in hand in hand with the last year. And he opted out of last season after his, he and his wife adopted twins and it was Buster Posey. And Posey didn't play last year. I'm assuming that he was able to keep up with his training. And he had a year off now and has come in. And I'm asking you this because we just published an article on JustBaseball.com looking at the Giants, who have the best record in baseball right now, even though they are the oldest team, I think, or the second oldest team in baseball. Buster Posey is having among one of the best seasons he's ever had, like right up there with the MVP season. Is this something that is a byproduct of him sitting out for a year and being able to get right? Or did something just click for him? Because it's not just Buster Posey. Evan Longoria, he's on the shelf now. He was hitting. Brandon Crawford is already on his way to having a career year. Brandon Belt, all of these guys that are on the other side of 30 are playing out of their minds. But Posey's on that different level. Is having a year off something that just gives you this rejuvenation, especially as a catcher? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you know, catching is the most demanding position on the field by far. So I think in Buster Posey's case, yeah, that probably benefited him a lot. But also he was kind of on that backside of the old school type training as well, where he knew how to get his body ready by actually playing the game of baseball, throwing and running and hitting a lot, where I think a lot of these guys get ready by stuff they're doing in the weight room on machines and things like that. So his functional training, I bet, is what helped paved the way for his year this year. And I mean, the health of, of course he's had Nick, he's been nicked up over the last few years, had a few injuries and to be able to just totally rest and get that uh, your body healed completely. And now he knows how to get back into shape. He's a, what is he 14 year veteran now, 15 year veteran now. So he knows what it takes for him to get back into playing shape. And now he's locked in and, and doing great. It's been so much fun for me to watch because I've always loved Posey. Yeah, I remember watching him at FSU, playing every position. There's something about the Giants, that older guy, career renaissance, that they've got a, something going on there where they figured out, we're going to take these guys that can still play, that have the track record, that uh, don't have the maybe as much value as others would 
place on them because of their age, but can still hit. And you're somebody that played till you were 40 and continued to, to just stay consistent through the later years. What's the biggest thing to being able to have that longevity on the field? Or is it just almost biological and you're just born with a little bit of a predisposition? Obviously, there's hard work that goes into it. But if there's something outside the obvious, how is somebody like you or some of these other guys that we see go till the age of 40, which doesn't happen much at all anymore, how does somebody do that? Um, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, look at Nelson Cruz. Uh, the guy's still crushing the ball. It uh, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense in his case. He's just murdering the baseball still. Um, but I think it's a combination of things. So some guys just know how to maintain their skill set better than others. Um, they're harder workers in the offseason. Mentally, they know how to prepare for a game better than, than others. Uh, I think when sometimes when a superstar loses that edge, uh, their mind starts spinning and they, they go downward mentally. And that's what kind of gets them out of the game. And another factor I think is uh, if you're great in the clubhouse, people want to have you around. So if you're great in the clubhouse and you help a team out, especially uh, with the younger guys and they want to have you around, then, then you have motivation to, to stay at a high level. Um, I think that was more my case than anything, because at the end of the, my career, I was more of a part-time player, but um, I think I added a lot to a clubhouse. So uh, teams like to have me around because I helped out the young guys, um, but I worked my butt off to keep my fitness level up and my skill level up so that I was still a productive player. So it's kind of both. I mean, I, I think that today's players, they, they burn out more quickly just because, you know, they, they make so much money in such a short period of time that I, I don't know if they lose incentive, but um Sometimes I just, they lose the desire to work that hard and they lose it mentally. And that's something that you, you see the big contracts now. And it seems like for the most part, they don't really work out that well. The 10 year deals, they don't seem to work out that well. I know that it's great to see guys get paid and it's good for the game to have those mega deals where people can point at Fernando Tatis Jr. and say that that's a major contract. He's going to be the face of the game or whatever it may be. If you were a front office exec, would you ever give out a 10-year deal to a player not named Mike Trout? Um, no, it would have to be uh, such a special um, situation and a special person. And you, you mentioned Mike Trout. You know, I've got a man crush on that guy. It's like uh, I think he just embodies everything in baseball. But you've seen him get hurt a lot over the recent years as well. Yeah, so He's on the shelf right now until I saw the 68 IL uh, recently. So, um, but no, as an executive, I don't think the back end of those contracts are ever going to be fulfilled as uh, performance wise, like they're at the front end. And it's just, it's just a fact. I mean, you look at all these contracts and you look at the performance that these guys uh, have had the at years eight to 10 or eight to 13, whatever those contracts are. And they just don't stack up to the money. No. And you look at Albert Pujols, uh, that deal was a tough one. And now all of a sudden he's hitting, he's actually hitting really well in LA. Uh, And that might be a little bit of that, just change of scenery, feeling a little bit more inspired again after uh, I can't imagine how frustrating it's been in LA. We talk about Mike Trout. The guy has played one playoff game. Essentially it was a wild card game and that's it. And we're talking about the best player in, in the world and he's not making the postseason. I mean, the angels got to figure it out. And I'm sure Pujols, you know, he's still down a little bit, but 
got a little bit stale there. Now he's in a perfect situation, kind of like you were saying, a part-time role. I'm sure he's a big-time leader in the clubhouse, and he's deployed in certain situations where he's set up to succeed, specifically against lefties and stuff like that. Were, were you a big lefty-righty split guy? I really should know that. I should have checked the numbers. Did you, Was that something that stood out to you? Were you able to feel more comfortable against lefties? The one thing I do know about you is that you hit you're one of the best hitters ever off of Mariano Rivera, which is hilarious. And I want to get that. Started. <laughs> but first lefty righty splits, was that something that affected you at all? And could you talk about that a little bit? Because your son too, Griffin Cohenine, by the way, uh, who's in the Marlins organization right now, big power hitting lefty, but he's never really been affected by splits. And I've always found that no. pretty interesting. Uh, how has that been for you? Or how was that for you when you were playing? Is that something that stood out? No, not really. Uh, for a long time, um, I was pretty even, both righty-lefty uh, splits. I was probably s- slightly above uh, off lefties, I would say, but it wasn't like a glaring exactly. difference. Like like yeah. some guys were like, oh, my God, he hits 450 off lefties and 230 off righties. I would probably say, if I had to guess, I was probably 280 off righties and 290 off lefties or 300, something like that. What accounts for the, that dramatic of a split? I know that it's it's harder when the ball is breaking away from you, of course, but at the end of the day, it's still baseball. And you have guys that, like you said, that are 360 uh, from, from lefties and then 180 from righties there's, or vice versa. I mean, Jock Peterson comes to mind, but there's a lot of players like that. And it's almost become normalized at this point where it's like, yeah, yeah. You just don't put them in the lineup against lefties. Yeah. What, what accounts for that? Is that a, a swing path thing? Is that an approach thing? Is that an eyesight thing? Why are you having such dramatic splits from just at the end of the day, it's a baseball coming from 60 feet, six inches. I know it's different. I know it's hard as hell, but it just seems so dramatic to me in some instances. Yes. To all the above. I I think you hit it uh, a little bit on all the right heads. It's it's an approach thing. Uh, It's an eyesight thing, you know, because as a right-handed hitter um, you know, it's coming further to my, out of my sight, the right-handed pitcher where, you know, conversely the, the lefty is you've got a, a more of a field of vision at coming at you. You can recognize the pitch a little bit better. So pitch recognition, uh, some guys have a trouble recognizing that slider or the ball that, that's sweeping away from them. They miss a lot of those, um, an approach thing. You're not, uh, setting up properly for a right-handed at bat. Um, you know, all these things kind of, I think get into a guy's head too. So he's like, Oh, I got a tough left or a tough righty tonight with a tough slider, you know, I'm going to just try to survive instead of I'm going to have this plan. And I'm going to get hits. Uh, so I think a little bit of a little bit of everything. Well, your son the other day just went yard off of a lefty and not just any lefty. He was one of the top picks in this past draft in Asa Lacey, who is downright nasty. I, I talked to Griff about that. And he's like, yeah, when he's on, it, it's, it's otherworldly. Uh, they were able to get to him though. And Griff hit, hit a nice oppo bomb off of him. And Griffin's been crushing the ball and I mean, it's probably more nerve wracking, Edison. We've talked about this and it's understandable watching your son play than it was playing yourself. You told me that it was more nerve wracking than playing in the World Series, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And I can understand that. But you're watching your son have success now. And um, of course, there's things you can always get better. And he's probably as hard on himself for better. You know, he's just a perfectionist in a lot of ways, but is doing great. How hard is it? to sit back and watch sometimes. I mean, it's got to be awesome at the same time, but to just sit back and watch your son now go through a really difficult, treacherous road that you went through and were able to succeed in. And I have all the confidence in the world that he will too, but you know how hard it is. And you're watching your son kind of go through it also. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's killer for me. Um, Like you said, I'm as proud as you can possibly be because my son kind of filtered along through uh, the ranks and he was a late bloomer. I didn't really think uh, freshman year at Pinecrest, sophomore year at Pinecrest, (laughs) people would ask me like, hey, what kind of ball players are going to be? I'm like, ah, he might be a division two, division three. He wants to play, but you know, that's what the skill level I thought. But then all of a sudden, you know, the summer between the sophomore and junior year, he shoots up four inches, gains 30 pounds. And now he's in control of the bat instead of the vice versa. I thought the bat was in control of him for a while. And all of a sudden the bat speed goes off the charts. And, you know, like you said, he's laser focused on stuff. He's a cerebral player. So he's always analyzing his swing. He's always working out. He's always eating healthy. I mean, this kid won't even eat a piece of pizza for God's sakes. I mean, it's crazy how... You didn't have cake on my birthday. Of course not. There's no way that he's going to let birthday. that. I was like, dude, not not let that mom. stuff in the temple. Come on. I, <laughs> I tried to get him to eat a taco here, a taco Tuesday, and he won't even do that. He finally broke, the, he finally broke down one time and had a taco, and I was like so happy yeah, that it just, wasn't his raw broccoli and carrots and a chicken breast. You know, It was like crazy, but uh, you got to live a little bit, but he is so focused on what he does, and I tell you what, his skill set is way better than mine ever was. Um, and I say this a lot, but when you get to that level, you are now the best player basically on every team you've ever played on. So instead of being the standout high school player that, Hey, that's the man, he does things that nobody else can do. All right. Well, then you go to college and now it's, it's evened out a little bit, but still he's stood out. He's a guy that does things a lot better than most guys there do. But now when you get into pro ball, you're standing on a field with eight of the guys that were the same guys that were the best they were at every position they ever played on every team they ever played on. So now it becomes all up here. How do you deal with hitting 260 instead of 450? Yep. You know, you dominate, you dominate really, you dominate pitchers. And now you don't dominate. Sometimes you struggle. You've never struggled in your whole life. So I think, uh, and I've always preached this to him. It's how you handle your slumps and try to minimize those to extend your streaks. And that's what separates the good from the great. Uh, you're, you're good when you sign a pro contract. You're a good baseball player. The great is when you make it to the big leagues. Those are the great ones. And what se- uh, separates those two is the mind, 100%. <laughs> A hundred percent. I totally agree with that. And and it's amazing how mentally taxing baseball can be if you don't have the right approach mentally. Uh, we talk about approach at the plate, but approach mentally can can hold you back. And that's the difference for, for so many players. The thing with Griffin too, though, and, and the last thing we'll say about him is that he is downright and I'm obviously biased because he's one of my closest friends. So I always, I always acknowledge that if he ever comes up, but it's he's objectively one of the most powerful hitters in the entire minor leagues. And what comes with that is you're going to be pitched to very differently. And I'll watch his games, man. He won't see a fastball for two at bats sometimes. And then he'll finally get one in in a three, two count after seeing seven straight curveballs. And you almost start thinking too much. You start thinking, am I ever going to see a fastball? And I can't imagine, you know, the, the mental warfare and something like that. And, And that's what comes with the territory of being feared. Right. Being feared comes with a lot of curveballs and comes with a lot of breaking balls. And you talk about how he has this skill set that not even you had who had a 17 year career. He's got a skill set that not many guys in the bigs have in terms of being able to hit the ball with authority. Uh, I mean, 13 home runs this year puts him near the top in the minor leagues so far. And that ability to be able to try to stay patient while 
you're not getting a lot to hit. He walks a ton. I love looking at the different trajectories between you and your son, right? Because you played at UCLA and never had an at-bat, right? Or did you have one right. at-bat? You have one, one or that. You had one not official. It was not official. I got hit by I got hit by the pitch, so I do <laughs> so not have an official. At-bat. <laughs> one thousand one thousand on base percentage. One unofficial at bat, and you get plunked. Yep. Griffin was Cape Cod Player of the Year uh, and had all of these accolades. You get drafted. What was it? The forty what round? Fifty eighth. <laughs> I forgot that. Fifty eighth <laughs> round. They had fifty eight yeah. rounds. Your son was drafted in the second round, but yep. you skipped through the minor leagues pretty damn quickly. And Griffin is in a world now in baseball where it's, you really got to pay your dues. No matter, even if you're hitting, if you're demolishing, you're still going to have to make your way through. It's just a different time. And it's, it's really hard because there's guys that are just crazy talented in the minors. And do you almost sense like he's playing in a different league than it was when you were there? Are there a lot of similarities or do you feel like it's, it's just totally different from when you played? Because I love to see the, the guy that played in the, you know, in the minors, maybe in the late 80s, played in the 90s, early 2000s versus what we're seeing now is, are there any stark differences for the path of a minor leaguer uh, to get to the bigs from what you saw and experienced? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the competition now is insane. You know, you go up and watch Griffin play. And I remember in his uh, short season, a ball in Vancouver, he had just signed and uh, I can't remember what team it was. Uh, I can't remember the organization, but they had four pitchers go out there and throw 95 miles an hour. Plus the closer was hitting 100 and 101 in short season, a ball. I mean, I never saw that until I got to the big leagues. I mean, no minor leaguers threw 98, 99 miles an hour when I played the minor leagues. So now you're going up against guys every single night that are throwing 95, 96, 97. And I, I just think, you know, hitting a baseball is such a fine motor skill and is so difficult to do. It's even more so now just with the addition of the velocity. We're just talking about this today with a friend of mine is that when I first came into the big leagues, average major league fast was 89 miles an hour. No way. <laughs> 89 miles an hour. Right now it's 93.7 miles an hour. It's, it's gained almost five miles an hour. And the difference between 89 and 94 is crazy. And the difference between 94 and 98 and 99 is even crazier. It's like, but when you look at what these guys are capable of doing now, and like you said, when Griffin is out in our cage in the backyard, I threw up, you know, kind of haphazardly doing the, during the pandemic. So he had someplace to hit, he would hit a ball up in the, up in the corner, the right corner of the cage, which would be opposite field for him. And he just stand there and kind of look at it. I'm like, is that gone? He's like, yeah, I got that one. I'm like, I, I, I couldn't relate to that because I couldn't do that. I had to hit, center field to the left field line. That's where I hit probably 99% of my home runs. I hit a few out the other way, maybe down the line or a few that I, I got deep or something like that, but he's playing a game that I wasn't familiar with. So he's got an advantage that he can, he doesn't have to try to pull a ball to hit for power, hit a home run. He can hit the ball out anywhere on the, on the, on the plate. So that's an advantage and a disadvantage, like you said. So he, now he gets pitched much differently than most everybody in the lineup because Hey, chicks dig the long ball and pitchers hate giving up the long ball. So they hate giving up home runs. A hundred percent, especially in the game now today where everybody, the, the approach is hit a lot of home runs and, and people are trying to avoid them because that's the biggest susceptibility for prospects. That's what people are looking at is like, can you keep the ball in the yard? Because it's so hard to do nowadays, especially at the big league level. So a couple more things I wanted to talk about. So people have something to look forward to when they can get some idea of what to expect ahead. And 
a lot of stories. I think Griffin even told me you still tell him stories at dinner that he's never heard before. So we're going to have endless material. And I feel like we talk about things and then it brings up a story that maybe you haven't even thought of in a long time. And that's the fun part about it is we don't know sometimes where these episodes are going to go. And I mentioned Mariano Rivera and I love your story about the first time you faced Rivera. Can you talk about just real quick, because you, you had a really good career against Mariano Rivera. You hit over 300 against him. But that being said, I'm pretty sure your first at bat was a little bit of a shell shock. Um, yeah, uh, we were in Yankee Stadium and I'm, I'm with Baltimore Orioles and I'm asking my Baltimore teammates, I'm like, what's he got? And they said, fastball. And I'm like, all right, what else? And back then he actually did throw a curveball a little bit uh, occasionally, but they said fastball. I'm like, that's it? Yeah, it's a cutter though. It, you know, it's a cutter. That's why he throws a cutter every single time. I'm like, cut fastball. And it's every single time. Yep. All right. I'm thinking he's got one pitch. I don't care what speed it is. I, I remember seeing the pitch, the first pitch, and I took a step back and I said, that's not a cutter. That's a 95 mile hour slider. It literally had depth and it broke about a foot and a half for 95 miles an hour. And that's what he threw every time. So he could throw it in at your hip. And what do you do with a 95 mile an hour slider coming at your hip? You just kind of freeze, comes over the inside corner. Uh, and then I could never understand why managers would put left-handed hitting pinch hitters against Mariana Rivera. They would do it all the time, I guess, just by the book or whatever, but that is absolute death to a left-handed hitter, a 95 mile an hour cutter coming in their hands. They had no chance, zero chance. And that's, that's how everybody got sawed off, right? It's, it starts over sawed the off. You think it's coming over the middle and then boom, but by the time you get your hands going, it's, it's on your fists. And funny story. We're, we're in Baltimore. We're facing Rivera. And Derek May, our manager, puts in Derek May to be a pinch hitter. He's a left-handed hitting outfielder, pinch hitter against Mariano Rivera. And Joe Girardi is catching for the Yankees at this time. They played together when they were at the Cubs. So Rivera throws this ridiculous turbo sink slider inside. Derek May takes a huge swing, and he, has, he made contact, but he had no idea where he hit the ball. So he's looking around like this. He's looking around, and the ball's going down the, the third base line. And Joe Girardi looks up and says, run, D, run. Because <laughs> he's standing at the plate. He's trying to find out where he hit the ball. He had no idea. He hit it so far in on his hands that he thought he fouled it off. But it's literally squibbing down the line. And it went inside the bag. Scott Brocious couldn't get to it. He should have had a double if he would have run. But he, he at least got a single. But Joe Girardi told him to run because they're buddies. You know, he is in Chicago. Like, yeah, and he had no idea. He's looking around. And he's like, the ball's on the field in fair territory. Run, D, run. And that's a major leaguer. That's hit that's <laughs> like thousands leaguer. of balls in play and gets yep. one on the hand so deep that he didn't even know he put it in play. And, and that just puts into perspective how much of a unicorn I think he was. When you have those reactions, right, where you have a major leaguer not knowing where he hit the ball, I feel like that just describes it all, right? And I don't know if it was that series, but, you know, we had heard that he'd been tink tinkering with a, a sinker. So we're like, oh, that's all we need is the ball to go the other way when he's dominant, you know. So Cal Ripken gets up to the plate, and it's about a week before the end of the season. So they're tuning up for their play. We're out of it. We're totally out of it. So he's just – Rivera's really just working on stuff. So he's working on a sinker. So sure enough, Cal gets up there, and he takes a hack and, you know, takes a big swing, and he's holding the, the handle of his bat because he sawed it off. Snap the barrel, a dribbler back to Mariano. He throws to first, first base. And Cal gets in the dugout and he goes, boys, the rumors of the sinker are true. 
and it's damn good. <laughs> he threw a turbo sinker inside and sawed him off so much it broke, shattered his bat, and dribbled one to, to – like you said, here's Cal Ripken. When he's impressed by something, this guy's seen it all. You know, he's done everything. He's MVP. He's one of the most iconic players in the game. When he's impressed by something, you know it's something special. Well, and that's the last thing I want to ask you because you have so many – teammates that you played with that were just so incredibly impressive. You talk about the Royals. You had an overlap with George Brett at the end, I believe, right? You had Bo Jackson over there. You had Ripken. You even played with uh, Sheffield, with the Marlins. There's so many just interesting or impressive players in so many different ways. Uh, Miguel Cabrera at, at a young age. I mean, I, I can't wait to hear the stories about him. And we're, we're going to talk a lot about Cabrera as he en- encroaches upon 500 home runs because I mean, this guy deserves, I think, the best send-off ever whenever he decides to do that. I think he's going to have another year after this one. But, I mean, what a career from him. Uh, But there's so many impressive players that you've been able to play with, and I'm sure I'm missing some. Who are the one or two guys that really stand out to you uh, that just were made the game look easy or just did something that you just never saw anybody else do? Well, you mentioned Bo Jackson. I mean, uh, talk about a guy that, um, you know, we're still talking about him to this day. I played with him in 1990. You know, we're talking 31 years ago, and I'm still talking to this day. He's the best athlete that I've ever seen. He made stuff look like um, like child's play. I mean, the speed from his frame. He was a 235-pound guy, and he's probably the fastest human being I've ever seen in a baseball uniform, including Deion Sanders. I played against him, and he was absurdly fast, but Bo was just – combining that power with that speed is something that you're you're I was in awe of and still to this day he did things that I've never seen before um you know you look at the artistry of George Brett uh hitting like he did um I'm more of a uh a guy that uh like George Brett or or Andre Dawson I played with Andre Dawson at the end of his career with the Marlins and you know poor Andre Dawson he played on turf in Montreal his knees were shredded he I don't know he's up to probably double figures, knee surgeries on both knees. But I just remember him going up to the plate and if he hit a ground ball, he ran so hard to first base every single time. And I admired, I mean, there's no one that deserved to take a trot down first base more than Andre Dawson with his, the career he had a hall of fame career he had and the condition of his legs. But no, in his mind, he had to run as hard as he could every time to first base. George Brett did the same thing. So in my mind, I admired players like that probably more than the ultra talented guys that made it look easy because these guys were grinders and they worked so hard at their craft and they made it to the ultimate uh, destination, the hall of fame. And because they worked harder than everybody else to the very end of their careers. I was with George Brett when he got his 3000 hit and he won uh, a batting title that year. And that was the third different decade that he had won a batting title. And I mean, you talk about guys that make it look easy. And, and that's the thing too. I always think about Mickey Mantle, some of those guys, I can't even really tell you how they hit a baseball. That's the amazing. They, they just could do it. And it is somewhat almost more impressive sometimes when it's somebody that may not have those physical gifts, but just grind it out. And I, again, Ripken, another guy that I think fits right in that, that threshold as well. Of course, a very, all of them are physically gifted, but relatively speaking to some of the other guys that we see in this game, especially now, I do like the grinders. I mean, Jake Cronenworth is one of my favorite guys on the Padres. He was a two-way player at Michigan and just grinds it out. Uh, one last thing, because this is, as we talk about Miguel Cabrera, and we're going we're gonna to talk about him a little bit more next time, so I want to have some of your takeaways as, 
uh, being able to see him as a kid first coming up. For me, one of the most iconic moments in his career, and I want to see how much you remember this at back. So you seem to have really good recall, which is going to be great for this show and great for me selfishly. The at bat against Roger Clemens, he gets brushed back up and in and then gets right back in there. And this is a 20-year-old Miggy just called up. And this is a 40-what-year-old Roger Clemens who had fake retired for like the third time. <laughs> and was like, yeah. yeah, you know, and it was his last start, quote unquote. Um, you know, and yeah, it was, we're out there giving him. Yeah. Yeah, yay. We'll we'll see you next year. Uh, You know, that kind of thing. But we'll see you next week. Yeah. (laughs) But one hell of an intimidating guy on the mound. No doubt about it. And he wasn't scared of anybody. And he's one of the best to do it. And Miguel Cabrera couldn't give a crap. And brush back up and in. We know that was intentional. I mean, I I would assume so. It was smart, you know, getting his head. Miggy battles, 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 and launches a home run opposite field in Joe Robbie which we will also talk about. I want all the Joe Robbie stories uh, for a home run off of Roger Clemens and spoils his fake retirement game or whatever. Uh, that was to me, I watched that at bat. I've probably seen it 40 times uh, that in your throw at to home to get JT snow. I, those two plays I've seen a million times. Do you remember that at bat? And was that, did it already happen for you where you're like, Holy shit, this kid is for real. Or was that one of the moments where you're like, Oh my gosh, this guy's going to be the next big thing. It was when I first got there, obviously I'd only been with the team a month uh, when I got traded over, but I got to see him for a month before we got into the playoffs. And I was like, Holy crap, this might be one of the better right handers I've ever seen as a 20 year old. But that at bat took him to another level. Like mentally, when you go into a situation like that world series, you're 20 years old. He just, there was another game for him. And Roger Clemens was another pitcher that pissed him off because he tried to hit him. And he just like, all right, let's go like game on. He didn't care who threw it at him. He didn't care. Roger Clemens, you know, the rocket 4,000 strikeouts, 300 wins, blah, blah, blah. He could have cared less. And for me, that at bat turned him into a superstar in my mind. Like I said, that kid's going to be unbelievable. He's going to be an unbelievable player. And he showed me he's still one of the greatest right-hand hitters I've ever seen. Ever. It's, it's unbelievable. And uh, the guy that I've been comparing to him, and he's got a lot of work to do, but it's starting to show some flashes of that. It's Vlad Guerrero Jr. And um, I, I'm, I'm excited to discuss him as well. But we have already hit the hour mark. So it, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be doing this. <laughs> and I mean, time flies when you're talking shop, right? And this is going to be a blast. We'll have guests coming on from time to time. We'll be talking about all the latest things in baseball. Uh, we're also going to be very open too, where I want to let some people ask some questions. We'll integrate some questions from our TikTok, which I know you're no, uh, you're, I don't think you're on TikTok. We just I'm got not. you back on Twitter. We just <laughs> got you on LinkedIn because I failed to mention, uh, oh, by the way, you're the associate head coach for Florida International University, which is one hell of a baseball program. So congratulations on that. And Thank you're going to be able to provide a lot of insight on college baseball as well. Uh, that's going to be a blast as a guy that played in college baseball, as a dad that was, you know, a father of a college baseball player. Uh, there's going to be a lot of fun there. And I'm excited to be able to pick your brain on just what goes into collegiate baseball, especially now we have the college world series potentially ending tonight with Vanderbilt, but so many different things we're going to be able to talk about. I think it's endless. The fact that now you just add the college baseball coach to your resume. Now is just, it's just endless. Now you can add podcast hosts. Uh, to your resume. <laughs> and this is going to be a blast. We're going to have snippets on the TikTok. I'll just let you know, like, hey, you just did 100,000 views because we've got now almost 60,000 followers on there, which is crazy, crazy. I don't even know how it works. That's all Peter. 
but we're, we're really excited about this show. I know everybody at just baseball is excited about it and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. So I'm excited too, man. This has been fun. And like you said, uh, I love talking shop. I love uh, talking baseball more than anything. And, and I'm excited to impart some of that knowledge on these young college hitters I'm going to be working with soon. So uh, hopefully you get my mind going again with all the, all these things that I can teach them uh, on the game. Oh, I mean, I have memories going back to when you came through to our high school practices and before that, when I was playing with Griffin and uh, I can tell you best move FIU could have made great program, just got a lot better. And uh, all of us are just baseball now have our college team we're rooting for. So right, man, thank fun. you. I'll get, I'll get you some gear. I'll get you some sweat. Oh, everybody will love that. Everybody will love that. And uh, we're excited for the season coming up, but uh, thank you so much. And we have a lot of fun episodes ahead twice a week outside the box with Jeff Conine. It's going to be a lot of fun.